Welcome to another episode of the McDonald Laurie Institute's premier public policy podcast, Pod Bless Canada. I'm Sean Spear, a Monk Senior Fellow at the McDonald Laurie Institute, and I'm really honored to have with me today Ken White, a litigator, a legal expert, policy commentator from the United States here to help us think about questions of criminal justice in the United States, questions of free speech in the United States and in Canada, and of course, uh, the gorilla in the room, President Trump, the Mueller investigation, and what all of this means for presidential power and American democracy. Ken, thanks so much for joining uh, me on the show today. Well, thank you, Sean. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, maybe we should begin, Ken. You've had such a, a rich career involved in so many aspects of the American legal system. Maybe we just begin by giving listeners a bit of a sense of the nature of your work and your background. Sure. Uh, I started out my career in law as a federal prosecutor in Los Angeles. And, uh, you know, in the American system, as your, your listeners probably know, you have federal prosecutors representing the United States and then local prosecutors like district attorneys representing the states. So uh, and the federal ones are the ones you're hearing more about these days hmm. in the investigations of President Trump. So I spent six years there. I eventually went into private practice and about 14 years ago, uh, started my own firm with a friend. And since then, I've been focusing on criminal defense, uh, mostly white collar or political and litigation uh, with as much free speech litigation as possible. And in the last few years, I started writing more about what was happening in the special counsel investigation. And that led to things like uh, writing for The Atlantic and uh, a podcast on local public radio about president's legal troubles and things like that. So I've kind of fallen in the last couple of years into the public commentator role. Well, you've done a, such a huge service in helping the American public uh, separate fact from fiction and, and, and to try to understand the complexity of the president's legal woes and and uh, uh, special counsel Mueller's investigation. Maybe we, I, I called it the elephant in the room. I suppose we ought to start there. As we're speaking, we still don't have uh, the final report presently with Attorney General Barr. But maybe just uh, if you can help listeners understand how we've gotten to this point now that, and, and now that the report has been submitted, how should we think about next steps and what this means both for President Trump and American democracy more generally? Sure. And it's useful to look at it critically because for the most part, media coverage of it and certainly political spin about hmm. it have been extremely misleading. You cannot really get the real deal on what's happening most of the time. Uh, there are a lot of former federal prosecutors like me, and too many of them are willing to go on cable news and come up with ridiculous scenarios because it attracts viewers. Mm. So, you know, we start back about two years ago when under the U.S. Department of Justice's regulations, Robert Mueller was appointed as a special counsel. And his brief was to investigate Russian interference in the 2016 election and whether or not the Trump campaign conspired or coordinated with that and anything else spinning off from that. That was his brief. Yes. That eventually expanded a little bit to add on some past crimes by Trump's former campaign manager, Paul Manafort. And then we had two years of a somewhat accelerated federal criminal investigation. Throughout this, I've been handling people who asked me these things because I was a federal prosecutor, why is it taking so long? Mm. Why is this investigation going on two years? This is ridiculous. And what I tell them is that federal criminal investigations routinely take two, three, four years of sophisticated white collar type things like this. And in fact, that is the strength, the competitive advantage 
of American federal prosecutors is mm. that they are able to, like a spider spinning a web, slowly build a case. First, you get all the documents by sending out subpoenas. Then you start to talk to witnesses. And sooner or later, you flip one of them. You turn someone who used to be a wrongdoer into someone on your side. Mm. And you use their information to get a search warrant someplace else. And you use that information to flip that person whose house you searched. And you use his testimony in the grand jury to charge someone else. And that's how you go in stages over the course of two years from having no direct evidence to getting guilty pleas from the president of the United States' personal lawyer and campaign manager. Yes. And so federal prosecutors are used to building a case slowly like that. The problem is, you know what we're like, Sean, we are not a patient people down there. <laughs> and we're not great at waiting for things like that, yeah. particularly now with these ludicrous news cycles driven very much by social media, but also by cable news. You know, I remember when I thought that cable news was driving ridiculously fast news cycles because a couple of big things would happen a week yes. and it was hard to catch up. And now with social media driving it, it's routinely a couple of things happening per morning. Yeah. My co-host and I record our podcast early on Wednesday mornings and routinely something happens literally while we are recording that we have to decide whether or not to incorporate into the show. So all this drives a huge amount of speculation. And, you, and I suspect that uh, political polarization only exacerbates this tendency towards short-termism, spin, speculation, and so on. Exactly. And that's why you saw on the opposite sides of this investigation, the lunatics on the left saying that, oh, their, their secret racketeering indictments have already been brought against all these people and they're yes. under seal and they're all going to be frog marched out of the White House. Just you wait any day now. And on the far right, you have all these people, you know, oh, George Soros and the, you know, the banks of Zurich or something are behind all this with a deep state and, and you know, Robert Mueller's team are all Democrats and, you know, he's going to do a coup against the government. Yes. All ludicrous stuff. So, but a lot of what Robert Mueller did that we've been observing is very standard, very routine, workmanlike federal criminal prosecution. And that's not surprising because he's, he's a somewhat conservative, not in a political sense, but sort of in a cultural sense. He's a lifelong government man, FBI, U.S. Attorney's Office. He does things by the book. He's kind of like a throwback to a G-man from a 1950s movie yes. or something. He's got that going on. And that's very much the culture of portions of the U.S. Department of Justice and the FBI. There's a certain style, and this is the style he uses, a methodical step-by-step -step approach. And a lot of these things people think there must be more going on. No, this is the way you do it. You do it patiently, you do it slowly. So where we wind up here two years later is that Robert Mueller has submitted his report as he's required to by the regulation under which he was appointed. He submitted it to the Attorney General of the United States and the Attorney General is now considering what part of it to turn over to Congress. And Attorney General Barr has already given some high points from it that were very gratifying to Trump supporters and very devastating to people who hate Trump. So it was revealed that the special counsel doesn't have any other secret indictments out there. 
that he is not himself recommending any more charges and that he did not find that there was coordination with the Russians to interfere with the 2016 election. But even if those disappointed a lot of people uh, who call themselves the resistance, the people who are big Trump foes, uh, it is not the rosy scenario for Trump that you would hear on Fox News or from the White House uh, spokesperson or anything like that. There are some signs that the Mueller investigation and that report, when it comes out, maybe in the next few weeks, is going to continue to disrupt Trump's ability to govern. Mm. There are a few things going on. First of all, it's 400 pages, not including very voluminous exhibits. There's going to be a lot of explosive stuff in there. And people are saying that Robert Mueller found that the Trump campaign did not conspire with the Russians. That's right, but that's different than saying that there's no evidence of that. So when someone like Robert Mueller says, the investigation did not find or conclude this particular conclusion, that signals we didn't find there was enough evidence to come to that conclusion. But I guarantee you that when you see the full report, other people will be saying, well, wait, I think that's enough evidence yes. to say there was collusion. And I think it's hard to argue that Trump's behavior towards Russia hasn't been sort of wonky and surprising now and then, and that feeds into that. So first of all, I think you're going to have, particularly the Democrats in Congress, look at this report and say, Mueller might not think this is good enough, but we do, and putting out the bullet points of the most explosive stuff in there. That stuff may just be kind of bumbling things like, you know, you and I were talking before this about the infamous meeting in Trump Tower with Russian agent, basically, where they're offering intel that, that they have gotten from the DNC. They're offering, basically, the hacked emails. Now, that's not illegal. That is not conspiracy with the Russians to hear them out when they're offering that. It would only reach the level of illegality if the Trump campaign conspired and coordinated with them. If they had said something like, it's a great idea for you to hack. In particular, I suggest you hack Leon Podesta's emails. That would cross the line into conspiracy. Mm. But simply saying, oh, you've got that? Oh, we'd be interested in seeing it. That's not an illegal conspiracy. But it looks really terrible, yes. right? And I think there's going to be stuff like that coming out that looks terrible for Trump and the administration. The other component is the obstruction of justice investigation. The question of whether once Robert Mueller, or even before he was running this investigation, and there were just, Congress was looking around, whether the President of the United States or his team did things to obstruct the investigation or any of the criminal cases that resulted from it. Now, again, the Trump people are trying to portray it as he's been exonerated on that, but that's misleading. What Robert Mueller said is, I'm gonna lay out all the pros and cons, but I think this is for Congress to say. Mm -hmm. Robert Mueller ultimately was operating in a field where he could not himself indict the president under Department of Justice guidelines because there's a 1970s era memo inspired by President Richard Nixon that says that you can't indict a sitting president. And for now, that's the policy, and he's a rule follower, Mueller is. So he thought the best thing to do would be throw this in Congress's lap under their power to impeach for high crimes and misdemeanors. And once he did that and laid out the evidence we haven't seen yet, pro and con obstruction of justice, it was the attorney general, Barr, and one of the people who had previously supervised Mueller, uh, Rosenstein, who made the call that in their opinion, this was not enough evidence for there to be obstruction of justice. 
Now, Trump's thrilled with that determination, but it is not a determination that we can really grasp or judge until we see the underlying evidence. So there's going to be a vast amount of information. I think a lot of it is going to be bad for the president and his administration about what he did. And there are going to be appearances that he was trying to interfere or his staff was trying to interfere with these investigations. And part of it may come down to a legal question. You have to remember that the attorney general, before he got the job, sort of gratuitously wrote a 19-page memo to the special counsel and to the president's lawyers. Now, this is a guy clearly with a lot of free time on his hands, right? Some people saw it as sort of an audition for the job of attorney general. But he wrote this memo just out of the blue from where he was in private practice, this memo arguing that the special counsel's investigation was not legitimate to the extent it was trying to prove that the president of the United States committed obstruction of justice by firing the former FBI director. Yes, Mr. Comey. Yes, exactly, James Comey, um, who is a a, a hero to some people, particularly to James Comey, and a, a, a villain to other people. So the idea is this. There are some powers that are inherent to the presidency. Uh, They're specified in the United States Constitution. And the question is, if you exercise those powers, can that be obstruction of justice? Can you uh, break the law by doing that which the Constitution gives you the sole power to do? And there is a credible argument. I won't say it's absolutely right, but there is a credible argument that you can't. That, for instance, by firing a member of the executive branch, which is something the president has the constitutional power to do, that he couldn't be obstructing justice. There's even an argument that because the president is in charge of the executive branch, including federal criminal investigations, he can't obstruct justice by ordering an investigation shut down. So when Barr, Attorney General Barr, said the other week that there was not enough evidence to show that the president obstructed justice, we don't know yet what that means. We don't know whether he means there's not enough evidence to prove the president tried to obstruct justice, or if he means the evidence shows that what the president did is by the Constitution not illegal. And that makes a huge political difference. Yes. So there may be explosive evidence in that investigation. The president absolutely tried to derail the special counsel investigation. And that could be, even if it's not something you can charge him for, that could be something that Congress could determine as a high crime and misdemeanor, which is the constitutional language for impeachment. So I guess the bottom line, that's a very long-winded answer to your initial question. The bottom line is this. Most people have been acting like we really know a lot now based on Barr's two letters. And I'm here to tell you we really don't. We know some of the landscape, but we do not know crucial parts of the landscape. And I think that it's going to play out in a way that's going to surprise people on both sides. Well, that's a huge public service, Ken. Your first point uh, on the question of collusion, that there's a difference between the threshold of criminality and a body of evidence that, that, uh, of collusion, I think is, is important. And then your second point, the nuanced question of the evidence in and around obstruction of justice, and then the more fundamental question of whether the president could, could even involve him or herself in obstruction of justice, I think are two points that uh, our, our listeners will be able to apply to the ongoing public discussion uh, and, and eventually the release of the report. Can I just ask you one point about uh, something you said initially about the, the comparative advantage or the competitive advantage of the federal prosecution process? Uh, I can't help but think 
that someone like Conrad Black would say that that's not a comparative advantage. It is a it reflects a kind of predatorial type of prosecution that starts with one question and then, as you say, spins a web until it ultimately finds someone to prosecute, even if it's detached from the initial uh, subject of investigation or the initial question. How should we think about something like that? And is there a risk that these types of prosecutions can take a life on life of their own and, and, and become? Uh, and, and become divorced from the initial question at the expense of people's rights or expense of maintaining a, a, a legal system that is fair. Well, Sean, 20 years ago as a federal prosecutor, I would have said that's all hair on fire, liberal nonsense. And now, though, as a 20-year defense attorney and true believer on that side, I would say those are absolutely correct criticisms of the system. So sometimes the competitive advantage I described, the, the spinning a web, does allow federal prosecutors to get to complex crimes by powerful people who might otherwise escape any consequences for their actions. I think we can agree that's generally a good thing. However, it does have the downsides you talk about. First of all, it is ruinously expensive to defend yourself against a federal criminal investigation. No normal American can afford it. And if you were part of one of these types of investigations where there are multiple stages and it's protracted, it is particularly expensive. So there is a huge gap between the representation that someone like a Paul Manafort or a Michael Cohen can get and something that an average person can get. That's a big issue. Another is, you were right, that a serious criticism that, that many people, including me, have been making for a while is that the process creates its own crimes. Yes. Uh, these sometimes you might have heard the Trump supporters refer to these as process crimes. This is something, by the way, that Barr got completely wrong, I think, in his letter to Congress. Hmm. Barr said in his letter that one of the reasons he thought that there was not enough evidence to show obstruction of justice by the president was that the investigation hadn't found an underlying crime. It had not found illegal coordination with the Russians. The implication is why would the president have to obstruct justice if there was no underlying crime? That is not a serious argument and he knows it, I respectfully submit. Because in fact, catching people for lying about things even when there's not enough evidence to prosecute them for those things is routinely how the federal criminal justice system Mm. works. And we've seen it for years. Whether it's Martha Stewart being successfully prosecuted for lying and obstruction, even though they could not get her for securities fraud, which is what they were asking about, whether it is former White House official Scooter Libby during the George W. Bush years, not prosecuted for being part of a scheme to out a critic uh, as a CIA agent, but being prosecuted for lying to a grand jury about it. And now plenty of times recently in the special counsel's investigation, You have General Flynn, who is successfully prosecuted for lying to the FBI in the White House itself. You have uh, Michael Cohen, Paul Manafort, all these people who, at least in part, are um, nailed because they told lies during the investigation. And I can tell you, as a federal criminal defense attorney, this is a huge problem and challenge because it is not unusual to have the government get leverage on the substantive charges 
by catching your client in a lie. Yeah. And then, you know, you're going to be convicted of a federal felony, might as well go all in. Yes. Let me just tell you a short story. I had a client who was on a minor, very local political body, very minor. He himself was a man of modest means, a uh, working man, and he was under investigation as part of a scheme by a local politician, a mayor. The FBI rolled up to his house at seven in the morning, raid jackets and guns, they knock on his door, they bring him out in his pajamas and put him in the back of a, a G-Ride. I'm sorry, that's a, you know, a, a classic FBI car, they all look the same. And they get in the back seat with him and they start interrogating him and they say, were you at this meeting on June 1st of this year with the mayor? And my client, uh, and this is part of public record, did a human thing. He said, no. At that point, they had already three witnesses putting him at the meeting. They had a recording of him at the meeting. There was no doubt in their minds that he had been at the meeting and it would be easy for them to prove it. So that lie he told there in his pajamas, surrounded by FBI agents, discombobulated, terrified, all of that, it was a stupid thing to do. But there's no rational argument that it actually interfered with the administration of justice mm -hmm. or with the investigation. But they charged him with lying to the FBI. And that was leverage over the other crimes he was charged with that were much more defensible. Hmm. That is a routine thing to happen where the federal investigators will say, we have a tough case here. It's going to be hard to prove what we're really investigating, whether it's coordination with the Russians or you know, campaign finance in the case of uh, Michael Cohen or whatever it is. And the attitude is, let's go talk to this person and see if they'll lie. And so I always tell clients before they talk to the government, which I prefer they do not most of the time, you have to assume that two thirds of the questions they're going to ask you, they can absolutely easily prove the answer to already. Hmm. And what they're looking for is they're fishing for you to lie. They're fishing for you to lie so they have an easy felony on you and they can flip you. Hmm. So that is an absolutely a criticism in the system, that it's a system that too much the process of investigating people generates its own crimes. And sure, I think there's a social interest in you know, not allowing lying to investigators or certainly lying to the grand jury under oath or things like that. But I think that the actual harms or dangers of lying to the government uh, have been far outstripped by this power that federal investigators have to turn things into crimes, to turn the investigation into a new set of crimes. Mm. Oh, thank you for that answer. It's comprehensive and, and, and fascinating. I'm sensitive that we've, that we've already drawn on your uh, intellectual ammunition and, and your time, so I, I won't keep you much longer. But you, you said it uh, when you talked a bit about the work that you do, Ken, uh, that you've been involved in, in free speech issues. Here in Canada, questions around free speech have been the subject of considerable political debate, both through our human rights commissions, through the uh, Human Rights Act, but increasingly on college campuses, on university campuses. Uh, so here in the province of Ontario, for the first time, the provincial government has enacted an expectation that our universities and colleges uh, create the conditions for free speech, for diversity of ideas, um, and, and those who fail to do so can uh, face uh, financial sanctions. It appears to be a policy that other Canadian provinces are considering. For those Canadians trying to understand the question of free speech, 
understand the policy and legal implications. And given that so often Canadian policy, political debates tend to follow what's occurring in the United States, can you just give us a sense of, of the landscape there on this question of free speech and, and, and maybe some advice to Canadian listeners on how we should think about these issues and, and as we grapple with how best to balance the tensions of creating an environment uh, where we have diversity of opinions, powerful conflict of ideas, and at the same time, not uh, turning uh, liberal intentions into illiberal means. Absolutely. And it's something that is very much in the news a lot in America now. I mean, the United States and Canada have very different approaches to free speech issues as befits two sovereign nations with our own traditions, uh, legal and, and cultural. I've been in the past a uh, critic of some of Canada's approaches. Canadians have told me not always an informed critic, and I'm willing to take that criticism. But one thing I see most strikingly right now is how much free speech is politicized and used as a political tool, as opposed to a genuine value sincerely pursued for its own good. I am very much a, uh, a big free speech booster. I'm not a First Amendment absolutist, but I'm, I'm close as rational people get. And I advocate very vigorous, very strong protection of free speech. And I always think other countries should as well, even though that's their choice. But I think that a lot of the dialogue around free speech in America, and I, and I get the sense also in Canada, is poisoned by it being politicized and that a lot of what is happening is that discussions over free speech are being used to divide us and conservatives, at least in the American sense, are trying to stake out free speech as the conservative issue and being anti-free speech as the liberal issue. Now, even the most passing acquaintance with American history and the history of the First Amendment and free speech in America would tell you that conservatives have never been and are by no means reliable free speech allies any more than liberals necessarily are. The, the bottom line is that people like to suppress speech that makes them mad, <laughs> and that pretty much cuts across all politics. But particularly on college campuses, what I see is sort of the manipulation of sentiment and expectation. And sometimes I think people are being basically rope-a-doped. They're being set up. So you have people do these sort of stunt invitations to um, inflammatory speakers. And, you know, there's no accounting for taste. Some people love uh, some of these speakers. I don't. But I think they are largely often invited specifically to agitate and to try to trick colleges into taking official action to silence them and to try to influence students into trying to shout them down. And I think it works. You know, there, there's a notorious church in America, sort of a church that goes around basically trolling people. They, they protest at Marines' funerals. They do all sorts of absolutely horrible things. They say horrible things about gays and lesbians. And they're completely trolling. You know, what they do is they try to get people to shut them down and they try to sue over that. I think that the free speech debate is being dominated by tactics like that. Mm. And that even though it is legitimately true that there are people on college campuses who think that someone they don't agree with should not be heard and who act on that, and I think those people are foolish and should grow up, that there is also a strong element of wanting to weaponize that 
sort of foolish, youthful exuberance and turn it into politics. I also think that there is definitely a political current running through the official response to this. So in America, we just had uh, the president pass a executive order saying that colleges that get federal funding have to protect the free speech rights of people coming to speak on the campuses because there's been a run of controversial people having various college campuses telling them they can't come or coming and having mobs prevent them from speaking. Of, as you say, varying degrees of seriousness, right? Yes. Some cases where, like, I think probably you'd agree, uh, some, a scholar like Charles Murray, yes. one can dis- distinguish between him and some of the more, as you say, provocateurs uh, sure. who I suspect are less motivated by principled argument in favor of free speech and right. more just about, you know, as they say on social media, owning the libs. Right. So, you know, whether it's Ann Coulter or yeah. Milo or figures yeah, like that, exactly. I, uh, I think that's very much the case. But the thing is, the president is not really a free speech fan. He has talked repeatedly about how we should change our laws to make it easier to sue people for defamation. He talks about how protesters should be shut up. And this is, this is largely theater. And there are a lot of laws being passed that are nominally about protecting the rights of speakers like Ann Coulter or someone like that, or even Charles Murray, that are actually seemingly crafted to make it easier to punish people who are protesters. So a number of states tried to pass laws saying you could be expelled if you protested the wrong way at one of these speeches. Now, Is it legitimate that at some point you are shouting someone down, you are preventing them from speaking, preventing their audience from hearing that should have consequences? Yes. I think that's governed by the First Amendment. The line is not crystal clear, but there is a line. But these laws are pretty clearly not really about increasing the general amount of speech in society. They are part of a culture war. They are a way to go after who they see as these people who are the ones protesting against the Milos and the Ann Coulters and Charles Murray's. So what I would say is, is I don't feel equipped to speak to the Canadian experience the same way, but I know that you all share a lot of the same uh, political uh, issues and uh, sort of psychopathic cultural flaws that we do. We're all in this together, right? And I, I think it's important to resist this call to politicize free speech into an us versus them. And remember that in general, in both countries, Free speech fights have been fought by both conservatives and liberals and against both conservatives and liberals. And that falling into this thing where it is a political fight, I think, reduces everyone's commitment to genuine free speech issues and turns it into just another culture war punchline. I think that's a, that's a terribly important point, that the people of goodwill on both sides need to be in favor of an environment of free speech. And that really creates the conditions for us then to engage in the types of rigorous um, debate that ought to animate our politics and our democracy. And may I just ask one final question? I, I'm sensitive of your time, but I've, I've learned so much, as I'm sure our, our listeners will as well. And it's on the question of criminal justice reform. For all of the talk, mostly rightly, of American political dysfunction and polarization, one area where there does seem to be growing political divergence, at least from an outsider's point of view, seems to be in and around um, criminal justice reform, the idea that the American criminal justice system has steered the car too far in the direction of punitive sentencing and so on. 
Uh, and we saw this, I think, in the last Congress, um, bipartisan progress on criminal justice reform. We've even heard liberals and progressives uh, recognize the work of more center-right politicians and groups advancing criminal justice reform. Maybe just give us, uh, first of all, your perspective on this trend, and also what you think both about the, the kind of underlying impulse, and if you think this may be a foundation for more bipartisan efforts, not just on this issue, but more broadly. So I think that we've seen baby steps, and I'm not going to get mad at that. Any progress is good progress, <laughs> and criminal defense lawyers and people interested in America in criminal defendants' rights generally don't see progress at all, or at least we haven't for the last half century. And I think we are, though, only nibbling around the edges. Mm. Some of the things we've seen are questioning of very long draconian sentences, an idea that federal sentences should be reduced somewhat. Those are good things. But the structural problems with the system are gigantic and very hard to separate from the society as a whole. Mm-hmm we kind of see this played out and it gets attention through things like the special counsel's investigation. And you see, you know, that the saying is that a, a liberal is a conservative who's been arrested. Uh, and you see in the course of the special counsel investigation, a lot of traditional, very hardline conservatives suddenly shocked at the way people are treated in the system and how unfair this is. Yes. Shocked that someone would be in solitary confinement. Yes. Shocked that just because they tried to suborn perjury from witnesses, they might have their bail revoked. You know, shocked that you can charge them for lying during the investigation. So if to the extent that this has gotten people sincerely interested in questioning some of these practices, good. But I'm skeptical that they are sincere about it. I think generally this type of thing comes up whenever someone on somebody's side is prosecuted, and then it goes away again as soon as the guy being prosecuted is on the other side. But America's problems with criminal justice are intertwined with race. They're intertwined with poverty. They are intertwined with culture. We have a enormous appetite to jail people as a way of dealing with social dysfunction and very little appetite to pay for adequate defense for adequate uh, conditions of jailing, for medical care, for follow-up after they're out, for anything like that. And that's been the truth for decades. So I think it would take a sustained effort on the order of a half century or a century to really make changes that would fundamentally change the American criminal justice system. But to the extent that we could weaponize this resentment of the special counsel from the right to start undermining the reflexive obedience to law enforcement and the incarceration state. The whole tough on crime exactly. ethos. The war on crime. You know, Ever since Nixon, that's been the mantra. Believe police officers, police officers and prosecutors are the good guys. What they want is the right thing and putting someone in jail is the right way to do it. Mm-hmm. Now, some prosecutors and police officers are perfectly good and noble and are doing a good job, but there's a fundamental social flaw and an attitude of deference towards them. And that's what we have through our political culture, through our uh, popular culture, you know, with, with a 20th or 30th Dick Wolf show uh, on TV <laughs> yeah. uh, showing, you know, the heroes of law enforcement. And I think to the extent we can use Trump's populist movement being critical of the investigations of Trump to undermine the um, American too much faith 
in the criminal justice system, well, I, I'm, I'm willing to do that. I'm willing to weaponize that and hope that it works. I'm, I'm somewhat cynical that it will, but I'm willing to try. Well, I hope you're right. I mean, this has always been the most <clears throat> frustrating part about Mr. Trump is in various instances, he's, I think, almost unknowingly challenged some of the basic precepts of American politics in a way that could actually be quite productive. You remember during the primary, for instance, he challenged the Club, club for Growth dogmatism about entitlement reform and mm -hmm. deficit reduction and so on. He even challenged the National Rifle Association at that time on its dogmatism around the Second Amendment. And then, as you say, his, his break with that convention oftentimes didn't last very long. And we'll see if, we'll see if this is an issue that has some momentum. And it's one where progress in the United States could help to inform a discussion here in Canada. We, we don't have quite the same problems as you do, but we still have a disproportionate number of our indigenous people represented in our criminal justice system, relatively high levels of recidivism, a lack of thinking, I think, in and around rehabilitation, the role of education, and so on and an ongoing debate about things like mandatory minimums and so on. So all this to say, uh, grateful for your perspective on that issue, Ken, as well as uh, your insights and helping us in, uh, think about not just the big questions of criminal justice, but of course, the, the one that's on so many of people's minds, uh, the Mueller Commission and Mr. Trump's political and legal future. So thank you so much for joining us uh, on another episode of Pod Bless Canada. It's been an, an honor and a pleasure having you. Well, thank you, Sean. It's been a great pleasure to do it.